very, very, very quickly. And this morning we are going to conclude our service. Well, communion will follow the teaching of God's word and conclude our service again, singing praise to the Lord Jesus. If reading God's word or if listening to someone talk about God's word, teaching it, preaching it, is like a meal, then this length of scripture, this is like a big meal. And so it's impossible to eat this whole meal. So what I encourage you to do is to take these three chapters, we're going to read some of it, and read it through again this afternoon, maybe a couple of times. And then if you're in a connect group or a life group, maybe read it every day between now and whenever your life group meets. If it meets Wednesday night, then read it three times between now and then and let some of the truths of this passage of scripture wash over you and so it's filled with application for us. So it's a big meal. Chapter 5 we uh, sort of got to last week where the Ark of God, the people of Israel have been defeated, the Ark of God is captured, they've taken it and they've placed it in the temple of Dagon, their god, fish god, um, and Dagon has fallen before the Lord and, and what Dagon is doing is what the Philistines should have done, but they don't. They don't fully understand. They probably thought it was some sort of accident or whatever, and so they pick him up and put him back, and next morning they come in, his head's cut off, his hands are cut off, he's completely conquered before the Lord. Uh, and so they take then the Ark of the Covenant, and they think, we better move this thing. And the people of Ashdod end up being afflicted with some horrible disease, whether it's bubonic plague, this plague of rats, or whether it's hemorrhoids, or whether it's ulcers, or something that was incredibly uncomfortable, but also um, with a high mortality rate. People were dying. Um, And so their strategy was, what are we going to do? Let's move it. So they move it from Ashdod to Ekron to another town, from there to another town, and uh, eventually they're just sort of confused and dumbfounded. So we're going to read from chapter 6, verse 1. When the Ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, seven months this had been going on, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and they said, what are we going to do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They're not moving it around anymore. It's like, let's send it home. How do we do that? And they answered, verse 3, if you return the Ark of God, the God of Israel, don't send it back to him without a gift. Uh, By all means, send a guilt offering to him. And then you will be healed and you will know why his hand uh, had not been lifted from you. So the Philistines asked, what guild offering should we send to him? They said, five gold tumours and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make idols of the tumours and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaohs did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so that they couldn't so they could go their way? Now then, get a new cart ready. Take two cows, milk cows, that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the carts to the cows to the cart and take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put on the put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it. Put the gold objects you were sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes uh, to its own territory, toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it doesn't, 
So we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. Not God, just bad things happen. Just a coincidence. So they did. They took two cows and uh, hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves and they placed the ark of the Lord on the cart along with a chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. And then the cows went straight up the road, straight towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They didn't turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua and there it stopped beside a big rock. People chopped up the wood of the cart, sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites of that city came out, took the ark, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all of this and then turned around and went back home to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as offerings to the Lord, one for each city, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath and Ekron. And the number of gold rats was according to the number of the Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, fortified towns with their own country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck the people of Beth Shemesh, the inhabitants there, putting 70 of them to death. Why? Because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh said, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up? from here, treating it the same way the Philistines did. So they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim saying, good news, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, come down take it to your town and they do and we'll pause there Um, let me pray Heavenly Father as we work our way through this incredible story a story uh, that magnifies you, reveals part of your character that we don't often either think about or encounter because your wrath and your terribleness has been shielded from us because of Jesus. And yet the reality is this is true to your character. So help us to hear and to respond appropriately that you are not just a God who is near, imminent and intimate and close to us, but a God who is high and transcendent, majestic and removed far from us in all of your glory. Lord, open our eyes, our hearts and our minds that we might be true to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's put the thing up. The... I've called this talk, if last Sunday it was the Raiders and the Lost Ark, then I'm going to call this one National Treasure. I'm working hard on these movie titles. Hours each week I go flipping, no I don't. The Philistines have, as I said, won the victory. They have captured the Ark. And this is not so much about the Ark being captured as much as it is about God invading the land of the Philistines. I've called it the invasion of the ark. I guess Eddie's going to find that thing before long. The invasion of the ark. 
Chapters 5, 6 and 7 fall into three parts. There is firstly, chapters, flip over, quick. Chapters 5 to 6 verse 12, it's all about judgment. That's in the land of the Philistines. Second part is chapter 6 verse 13. The ark is now back in Israel and it's discipline against his own people. And then the last chapter, chapter 7, is really about God's great intervention when the Philistines again attack many, many years later. But God this time intervenes in a very dramatic way. Next slide. Um, Back to that first paragraph, chapters 5 and the first part of 6. The ark is among the Philistines both for judgment but also as a witness. It's God knocking on the door of the Philistines trying to get their attention. God still does that, still operates that way in the world today. He will allow circumstances, allow crises, he will allow difficulties to get our attention. Our attention, unbelievers' attention, because God is desiring for all of us to come into a very close saving relationship with him. And if we've come into that saving relationship, for us to stay connected, close, not to grow dull or to drift. Well, the Philistines are the traditional enemies of the people of God back at this time. And the Philistines have won this battle, captured the ark and taken the ark back to the temple of Dagon where Dagon is clearly demonstrated that he is a false god and that the Lord is the supreme and triumphant one. And the Philistines' response to that in the midst of their spiritual ignorance is to simply move the ark. They didn't know any better. This was a significant trophy that they had won. It's gold covered, it's solid, it's valuable, it's probably pretty to look at. It would have had bloodstains all over it as the high priest once a year would splatter blood on it. So it was certainly valuable and perhaps very attractive and so they were reluctant to simply return it. After all, this was the proof that they had defeated Israel's God. It's the trophy of their success. I don't know how well you can see that. Top left-hand corner is Aphek. That's where the battle was. That's where they captured the ark and then follow that line down the coast. That's Ashdod. That's where they have now taken the ark right into their territory. And that little zigzag bit of the names of the five cities that the ark bounces around down in the heart of Philistine territory. This passage reminds us that the Lord is a supreme and triumphant God. He is basically saying to the Philistines, don't misread this. Don't misunderstand the fact that you have captured the ark. I'm not defeated. I have allowed this to happen. I allowed it to happen because I have forsaken my people. They were disobedient and I am using this to teach them a lesson, to get, to discipline them. But at the same time, I am using this opportunity to get your attention, to teach you and show you what I am like. You didn't defeat my people because you're a stronger. You defeated my people because I withdrew my presence from them. God is supreme and triumphant and he is still on the throne. I love that quote from very early church history where I think it's Julian, the emperor, an ungodly man who was persecuting the church and who in defiance of Christians and Christianity arrested one of the bishops and in the process of having put many people to death triumphantly expresses to the bishop what is the carpenter of Nazareth doing now? 
pretending that he was superior. To which the bishop very calmly but very clearly responded, he is building a coffin for you. (laughs) He's still on the throne. He still reigns. He still rules. You need to be able to reflect and say that in your life. He is great and we serve him. I don't know if I have time for this, but I want to tell you this story as well. 1715, Louis XIV, King of France. Amidst all the pomp and ceremony in France is the envy of the European world. At the age of 72, he dies. Louis the Great, as he liked to be called, and everybody's in mourning and his body's lying in state in the cathedral. It's in a gold coffin. And they lit one candle. My understanding is they had the candle above the coffin, somehow suspended above the coffin, and only one candle lit in the whole cathedral. So in the midst of the darkness there would be one light, like a spotlight over Louis the Great. People would file past and say whatever they wanted to say and say their farewells. And On the day of the funeral service, the bishop who was conducting the service was said to utter some words and he leant forward and he snuffed out the candle with these words, only God is great. Not Louis the Great, God is great. That's the truth of this chapter of God amongst the Philistines wrecking havoc. Not only is God triumphant but this passage also says that God is terrible. God punishes these people, unbelievers drastically. There is this devastation in verse 6 on Ashdod and its vicinity. It's uh, on their crops as well as on their own health. And as I said, we don't know what exactly it was. Some commentators think it's like a bubonic plague with all of the death and destruction that goes with that. Others talk about these large hemorrhoids and tumours. The passage certainly has these little gold tumours made in remembrance as an offering to the God of Israel. God was terrible in allowing these things to happen. God was certainly trying to get their attention and he got it. I don't think they responded the way, perhaps which was the best way, but that's what people do today as well. They simply, this is awful, we need to get God out of our life. As unbelievers, they have some knowledge of God. Like all people, they have some semblance of truth. Not all truth, but at least they understand these things. This is in chapter 6 when they're having this conversation about what are we going to do? There is an awareness that they have offended the God of Israel. Hence, they've got to send back a guilt offering. We've done something wrong. Maybe in capturing the ark, maybe that's all it is, but maybe it's something else. So they've got to send a guilt offering. They had certainly connected the punishments that they were receiving with the God of Israel. It wasn't a strong connection, but they sort of felt that's probably what it is. But they weren't sure, and particularly the priests and the diviners weren't sure. In chapter 6, verse 5, they are aware that they ought to give glory to the God of Israel. And in verse 6 of chapter 6, they are aware of the warning, don't harden your heart, not like Egypt did, and God destroyed them totally. So they have some awareness of religious, spiritual truth, just like people in our world, just like unbelievers perhaps in your own family. Deep, deep down inside, they know God is real. Deep down inside. They may say something else and they may argue something else, but deep down inside. Things go wrong. 
often, not all people, but most people, fall on their knees. Why God? There is this deep inner awareness. And Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following certainly gives us that truth. I even discovered this week in an article that I was reading that even Richard Dawkins, one of the world's famous atheists, is now calling himself an agnostic, not an atheist. Interesting, isn't it? In the process of the conversation that he was having, he uses a scale, one to seven. One is a believer in God and seven is an atheist, doesn't believe that there is any God. He put himself at a six, agnostic. There could be a God, but I don't know what he's like, I don't know where he is. And then in the process of the conversation, being Richard Dawkins, he sort of pushed it down to 6.9. So he's still sort of like, is there a God or isn't there a God? I don't know. But he can't say that there isn't as he erroneously has said, foolishly said in his book and even the atheist community reacted to his irrationality. Everyone knows that God exists but they suppress it. They live in God's world. They keep bumping into all that God provides for them. God trying to get their attention. And so the Philistines wanted to explain what was going on and they came up with a bit of a test. It's the priests and the diviners who come up with this test because they don't want to lose the trophy. They don't really want to, gee, the God of Israel is a true and living God and our occupation and the gods that we've been uh, using and working with are really false and nothing. They'd be unemployed, wouldn't they? So they come up with this test and the test is stacked against the God of Israel. Why don't you, next slide, next slide, next slide. Keep going. And there. Next one. Why don't you build a, build a new car? Brand new, never been used before. And that's appropriate to take something dedicated to holy purposes, sacred purposes that has never been used for any profane and or secular function. That's what they do, they build a brand new car. Take two cows, two female cows, cows that have uh, given birth just recently and take their calves and remove the calves from these milking cows and put them in a pen somewhere and then hitch these two cows that have never been yoked before to this brand new cart and then thirdly put the ark on it and the chest with the golden stuff in it and then send it up the road. If these previously inexperienced cows work together and go straight up the road, don't turn to the left or to the right, don't go into the field but go straight towards Beth Shemesh, then we will know that it was God who did this. Then we will know. That's a good test to do. They're not expecting it to happen. And God somehow intervenes and takes this incredible circumstances. These two cows that had never worked under a yoke, had never worked side by side, are doing exactly, which is counter to all nature. They are not responding to their maternal instincts to go to their calves. They are heading straight towards the Beth Shemesh, going to a city where they had never been before carrying their cargo with them. And the Philistines leaders are watching and following. And sure enough, when they go up and over the hill and 20 miles later they get to the city of Beth Shemesh, then and only then do the cows go off the road into the field, into the farm of Joshua, where the workers are there and there's a large rock. The cows had not gone for a feed, hadn't done anything natural. You ever seen cows on the road? They don't go in straight lines. They meander and they wander all over the place. These cows didn't. The Philistine leaders follow them. 
They get to the border of Israel and Philistines and they watch and they go, well, I'll be blowed. It was God. And they turn around and they go back to Ekron. So what's for dinner? It has no spiritual impact upon them at all. There's none recorded. That's amazing. God had been amongst them. God had been acting in judgment to get their attention. They had come to the conclusion, we think this is God but we're not sure. Let's test it. They test it and with flying colours, crystal clear, God saying, it was me. Do what Dagon did. Bow before me. Surrender. Submit. I am the triumphant and I am also the terrible God you ought to be in fear of. They didn't do any of that. Just like the people of Gadara. You remember that story in the Gospels where Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee and when he gets there there's this crazed demoniac. He's got 2,000 legion demons in him and Jesus casts them out and casts them into the pigs and I don't know how many pigs, 2,000 pigs run down the slope, drown in the, red sea, in the dead, in sea of Galilee. And the people of Gadara, when they hear about the pigs, come to Jesus and ask him to, please leave. Too costly. Too hard. Demonstration of the sovereign power and people's response is, oh, no thanks. I need distraction. And it's foolishness. You can only ever temporarily exclude God because one day, someday, we all have an appointment with him and we will appear before him and we have to give an account. God and his mercy, getting the attention of the Philistines, God and his judgment, revealing parts of his character to them, that he is triumphant and that he is to be feared. And God did it incredibly. He plays along. And their response is really just one of, just like the rich young ruler, having heard it all, then simply to walk away. Next slide. Uh, yep, next slide. Can't read that map. Next slide. Answer that question. Now in the, the place of Beth Shemesh, this little community, uh, I don't know how many people are there, but there is a textual issue uh, in your Bibles, and some of your Bibles will have a little note, it could be about 50,000 people. This is one understanding. And while they're there and they're sacrificing, they're having a great time and they see the ark is now with them and it is a national treasure, there's something historically significant about it for them. They're curious. What does the ark contain? And Beth Shemesh is a Levite city. There were Levites living in that particular village, town or place. And there was something they neglected to do. The scriptures are very clear, instructions to the Levites, that the Ark of the Covenant, when it's not in the Holy of Holies, is to be covered. It's not to be looked on. It's not to be touched. And it most definitely is not to be looked into. And that's what the people of Beth Shemesh do. Out of disregard, disrespect, overly happy at the party, don't know why, but they did something very stupid and very sinful. They messed with God's throne and God struck them. If you think about it, it's not God struck them instantly because it's 70 people who look in it. These 70 people are then Killed. There's some process, 
And, but the conclusion is inevitable. They did that and God did this. He is a triumphant and a terrible God and even against his own people. Why does he treat his people, the Israelites, more firmly than he did against the Philistines because they knew better? Was God being harsh at this point? Well, some people may conclude that he had been, but they had disregarded God's instructions. They had totally disregarded its purpose of the ark and God's provision. 1 Samuel 15 reminds us that to obey is better than sacrifice. That God puts obedience very high on his agenda and he requires it. And in fact, God regards disobedience like the sin of witchcraft or of divination. It is offensive to him, this triumphant, terrible God, who is our God. James chapter 3, verse 1 says that those who know the truth, as they teach the truth, will be held with greater account on the day of judgment. Teachers receive greater judgment. That's why God is punishing his people in Beth Shemesh more severely more quickly than he did the people of the Philistines. And Matthew Poole in his commentary writes these words and I quote them. He says, Men are very incompetent judges of these matters because they do not understand all of the reasons and causes of God's judgment. There are many secret sins which escape our observation but are seen by God, before whom many persons may be deeply guilty, whom people esteem innocent and virtuous. And therefore people should take heed of censuring the judgments of God um, of which it is most truly said that they are often secret but they are never unrighteous. We do not have the right to hold the gavel. We dare not hold a harsh evaluation of the righteous God's judgment. If the Lord judges strongly like that he has very good reason to do so. And he is never capricious. He is never unrighteous. He is never cruel. He is righteous, just and fair. Triumphant. Terrible. But this God has been revealed to us as a God of grace. The people of Beth Shemesh, chapter 6, down to verse 20, they ask the question, who can stand in the presence of the Lord. From a human point of view, no one. No one can stand there. No one is worthy to come. He is completely without sin and we are full of sin. We are tainted and defiled in every part. We cannot come into his presence as sinners. We are excluded. There's a huge gap. God is awful full of awe. He is terrible. We should tremble before him. We cannot come before him because he is without sin and we are full of sin, as I said. But Jesus came into our world, renders that which is impossible for us to stand in the Lord's presence possible. He bridges the gap. He leaves the door open when he goes home and he invites us to come, not in our own goodness, not in our own righteousness, not in our own religiosity, 
or our own spirituality or anything else, but humbly, knees bent, tongues confessing, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus has acted in our world and in our lives to take us out of the slave market of sin and to put us in his mansions in glory, adopted, made members of his family. Who can stand before the Lord? Well, no one except those who are in Jesus. That's why he is so significant. Now we can enter the Holy of Holies because of him. Ephesians 3.12 is one of my favourite verses. In the New Living Translation, I think it's the first edition, it says, because of Jesus and our trust in him, we can now come fearlessly, confidently into God's presence, assured of his glad welcome. Isn't that beautiful? Because of Jesus and what he has done and our trust in him, we can now come fearlessly, confidently into God's presence, assured of his glad welcome. But he is still the triumphant, terrible God. That's what he's like. He's full of awe. And we need to be careful. We do not make the mistake of overemphasising his imminence, his closeness to us in the person of Jesus at the cost of his transcendence of his glory and greatness. There is this balance, this loving, merciful, kind, nice God is awesome who acts in our world and in our lives. Well, the people of um, Beth Shemesh have removed the ark, the people of Kiriath-Jerim have received the ark and there it stays for something like about 60 years. The passage says, in chapter 7 and the first couple of verses, verse 2, the ark remained at Kareth Jerem a long time, 20 years in all. They're saying 20 years have passed. Now 20 years later, this is what happens. But the ark will still be in Kareth Jerem all the way through the rest of Samuel's life, all the way through Saul's life until David comes to get it from here to Samuel chapter 6. So it's there for at least 60 years. Why didn't they take the ark and put it back in the tabernacle? Because the tabernacle had been destroyed by the Philistines in that previous attack in chapter 4. They had continued to have gone across to Shiloh and decimated the tabernacle. It was gone. There was no tabernacle. There was no place for the ark of the Lord to be taken. So it was left there until God told them what he wanted to do with it. 20 years in, Samuel has been ministering and planting the seed of the gospel and things like that. And he then says to the people in chapter 7, verse 3, if you are returning to the Lord, the ark had returned to them. Now it's time for them to return to him, to get back in a right relationship with him. If you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he'll deliver you. Amazing, isn't it? 20 years, people of Israel have got the ark back the ministry of Samuel, the prophet and judge. And there are people who still have foreign gods amongst them. Naming the name of God, we are part of the people of God, but secretly having their own idols. And Samuel challenges them. Return to God with all your heart. Put away your idols and make a commitment to serve only him. Because you can only have one master. You can't have two as Jesus teaches us. So verse 4, encouragingly, the Israelites did that. They put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they said, we will serve the Lord. Time of commitment. And it's a great time. 
And Samuel gathers them at this place called Mizpah where he is going to pray for them. It's a consecration ceremony, a very special time in Israel's history when they as a nation were again coming back before God and in the midst of their renewal, their recommitment, the enemy attacks. The Philistines attack and it's amazing. God allows that to happen. So don't be surprised when you step up and when you commit yourself towards God that the enemy is going to come against you and God will allow it to happen because he's got something to teach you, he's got some purpose to achieve. God has another agenda which he is always working out. So Samuel brings the people together just before the attack. Verse 6, he takes water out of a well and he pours it out on the ground. What does that mean? Pours water out on the ground. On that day they fasted And on that day, they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. To pour out the water, the best that I can make of it, is that Israel was acting and water was precious. But they took it and said, this water, when we pour it out, becomes useless, irretrievable. You can't get it back. Perhaps Israel was saying, that's what we have done. We have taken our spiritual privileges and we have wasted them. We've poured them out on the ground. This is us, Lord. We confess. We've been wasting our spiritual opportunities and privileges. Could mean that. Or it could also mean, just as this water is precious, so we pour it out as an act of total commitment. You can't get it back. So we're giving ourselves to you and we don't want to give ourselves to anything else. It's total surrender, full-on commitment and fasting and confessing, being very, very honest before God and committing to serve only him. Philistine intelligence, their spies, misunderstand this gathering. They think Israel's probably gathering for war, so they assemble their forces and they come against them. This time, this is like chapter 4, repeat, only this time Israel responds correctly. They don't say, let's get the religious artefact of the ark and let's bring that with us and it will save us. They said to Samuel, verse 8, don't stop crying out to the Lord for us. You pray. You ask God to deliver us. We'll go fight. But we need God. And Samuel does that. Verse 9, he takes a young lamb, sacrifices it, offers it a whole burnt offering to God. That's significant. That's the lamb, which allows Samuel to pray effectively. So too for us. It's the lamb, the Lord Jesus makes it possible for us to pray effectively and act on his behalf. He cried out to the Lord on the Lord's behalf and the Lord answered him. Verse 11, when Samuel was sacrificing it, the Lord thundered. Israel heard it. Philistines heard it. When the Philistines heard it, they were confused. They went into a panic. They were decimated by it because their God, Dagon, the father of Baal, he was the God of the storm. And now suddenly it's God of Israel thundering against them. Again, God triumphant over the Philistines and over the Philistines' God. They panicked, they ran, they were slaughtered. It was an incredible victory for Israel, for the God of Israel. And then there was peace in the land for quite a while throughout the rest of the days of Samuel. The response to that is that Samuel takes a stone 
And he puts it between two places, Mizpah and another place, Shen. And he erects this large stone and he calls it Ebenezer. And it's significant. Ebenezer means thus far the Lord has helped us. Thus far. We haven't finished. There's further to go. There's more to do. But thus far the Lord has helped us. When you understand um, the meaning of the stones, then history makes sense. The Bible's filled with all sorts of stones. But this picture, this rock, is it so that Israel will not forget God intervened on their behalf. God thundered and there was a mighty victory. Ebenezer, thus far the Lord has helped us. Hudson Taylor took that name, Ebenezer, had it inscribed on a plaque along with Jehovah Jireh. Thus far the Lord has helped us and the Lord will see to it. Ebenezer. Let us not forget that the Lord has helped us in the past. Just like we love our kids, so he loves us because we are his kids. We want our kids to call to us, to run to us, to call on us to help them. When they do wrong things when they throw stones and break windows what do you want your kids to do run run from you run to you run to you and confess Billy's done a bad thing isn't that what we want that's what God wants when we get it wrong run to him not from him and confess call on his name draw near to him well, three words to note, then I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Samuel did three things. He got Israel to clean up their act, got them to confess, got them to run to God. Lord, we've done this wrong. We need your forgiveness. He got them to um, look up to God for his intervention. And through that process, he then set up a physical reminder, a monument to what God had done for them to deliver them. We have the communion table in for us this morning. The Lord Jesus has set this up as a physical reminder of what he has done on our behalf. He invites us to look up to him and to clean up our life. We're going to stand together and to do exactly that. We'll take some time. What do we need to turn from? What idols do we need to put away? What attitudes have got to change? What relationships have got to be fixed? What sin have I secretly been harbouring, indulging? It's time to say, stop. The triumphant, terrible God of the Old Testament, our Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit together, manifesting grace to us because of Christ but who still hates sin and hates it in us and will act to get it out of us. Let's stand together and Pastor David's going to come along with the others who are going to lead us in communion. And David will lead us in a prayer of confession as we come to the Lord's table.
Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. When we share the cup of the Lord and break bread together, we express our common participation in the benefits of Jesus' death for us. So we should examine ourselves before we eat the bread and drink the cup, confessing our sins to God and renewing our trust in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive all our sins and clean us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, let us confess our sins before Almighty God. Let's say together the prayer that comes up on the screen. Merciful God, our Maker and our Judge, we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed and in what we have failed to do. Not loved you with our whole heart, we have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. We repent and are sorry for all our sins. Father, forgive us. Strengthen us to love and obey you in newness of life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please take a seat. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lee is going to pray and give thanks for the bread. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Jesus, for his broken body, to cover us for our sins, Lord. We just thank you that we can come before you and confess our sins, and Lord, that you will cleanse us and present us new. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful privilege of the table to share together as a family. We just thank thank you for these things in Jesus' name. In thanksgiving, knowing that Christ has indeed forgiven us, Let's take and participate and share in the bread together.
After supper, he took the cup, and giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Gary will give thanks for the cup. Please bow in prayer with me. Father, we stand in awe of you and we are amazed at the sacrifice of your Son, our Saviour. A sacrifice that avails for us and avails for us even when we are in rebellion against you. Father, grant us a clearer understanding of the call that is on our lives because of such a great salvation. Let us never assume the default of attending and listening and leaving without being challenged. Open our ears. Open our hearts. And allow your love and grace to flow afresh to us that we might be changed forever. Amen. As you receive the cup, please retain it and we'll drink together as we remember the covenant of Christ's blood for us.
In thankfulness and in obedience, let us drink together in remembrance of him. Father God, as your forgiven, redeemed people, we thank you that you have shown mercy to us. You have called us in your Son. By his blood we have been made clean. We pray that we don't forget this. That after the service and throughout the week we will remember all that has been done for us in Christ Jesus. We will keep very short accounts with you, bringing our sin to you, acknowledging it, and seeking each moment to live in the knowledge of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're now going to pray again together and I'd like you to stand as we repeat together with each other the Lord's Prayer. So if we can stand together and the Lord's Prayer will come up on the screen and this is the prayer he taught us to say, so let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Just remain standing to sing. If you want to pass your cups along to the edge of the road, that would be appreciated. Thank you.
again for everything that you've done for us. It's just beyond our understanding, really. Help us to take this with us through the week, to not just go, oh, yes, and go home, what's for lunch, but to apply that, to let that really sink down deep inside and change our lives. We pray these things in your mighty name. There's area at the front here. If you would like or need prayer, there'll be you know people can come and meet you here. Uh, if you have a need this morning, otherwise there's morning tea out in the um, cold area. Thanks for coming this morning.